Lord, we pray that you would make it so that our faith in Christ and our confidence in his resurrection and in his promise to raise the dead, Lord, we pray that you would enable us by these truths to be courageous and to be prepared to take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus and lay down our lives for others as he laid down his life for us. We ask that you do this in us for the glory of your name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In his book, uh, I don't know, the one that came out, Making Sense of God, that's the title, uh, Tim Keller does this thought exper experiment where he says, imagine two ladies and they, they're going to work the same job and it's going to be drudgery. They're going to be on this assembly line. They're going to do the same thing over and over and over every day, all day long. And the one lady is going to be promised a minimum wage payment and that's all she's going to get. She's going to get minimum wage and she's going to do this drudgery work and, and that's her arrangement. The other lady also gets minimum wage, but she is promised that at the end of a certain amount of time, she will receive a bonus of millions of dollars. And he said it would be easy to imagine a situation where the first lady looks at the second lady and says, don't you, don't you get tired of this work? Isn't this boring? We do the same thing over and over all day long. And you can imagine the second lady saying, no, not at all. I'm thrilled to be doing this work. In fact, I can whistle while I work. And, and the difference is in the expectation. The difference is in what these two ladies are hoping for, what kind of hope they, on the one hand, have, and on the other hand, do not have. Well, we've been talking about where we came from and what's, get, what's gone wrong. And um, to, in this last session that we have together, uh, I, I want to talk about where we're going and I want to do this in three parts. I want to start by reflecting with you about the new Adam, Christ, and what he's accomplished. And then about the way that he is renewing his people in his image and the way that puts us in position to be those who are afflicted but always rejoicing. So uh, we talked a little bit in the last session about how what Adam should have done was intervene between the serpent and the woman. And he doesn't. And that pattern of Adamic failure just continues across the Old Testament. Uh, Hugh was asking me over the break about Abraham's lie that he told about Sarah being his sister. And in that narrative, uh, the way, I think the way that Moses shows his audience that this is actually sinful, what Abraham has done, is he puts the same question that the Lord put uh, that the Lord put to Eve, and then that the Lord put to Cain on the mouths of on the on the lips of Pharaoh, spoken to Abraham. So the Lord says to Eve, "What is this that you have done?" And then after Cain kills Abel, he says to Cain, "What is this that you have done?" And then Pharaoh says to Abraham, "What is this that you have done?" When it becomes clear to Pharaoh that Sarah is actually his wife, and then Abraham does it again in Genesis twenty. And that time, it's right before the birth of Isaac. So this is really jeopardizing. I mean, if Abimelech sleeps with Sarah, well, whose, whose child is Isaac? You know, it's really jeopardizing the line of descent. The Lord 
uh, protects Sarah and delivers her again. And then Isaac does the very same thing that, had fa- that his father had done and, and tells that sister fib about his wife, Rebecca. She too is taken by an Abimelech. And, and you just continue across the Old Testament. There are very few examples of men giving their lives for women. Mo- in most cases, it's men using women for their own benefit. We can think of, of David and Bathsheba. We can, we, can, we can think of Solomon and all of those women. On and on we could go with examples of male failure in this regard. And I think that, that in John chapter 18, if you want to open to that, we can look together at this narrative. In John chapter 18, it's as though Jesus definitively breaks that pattern of failure, not with reference to women, but with reference to people under his care, his disciples. So in John 18, John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, The word translated a band of soldiers is the Greek word that that could also be rendered cohort. And, you know, uh, a Roman cohort is going to consist of like 400 to 600 men. Maybe they had that many. I don't know. They had a big group. They had plenty of guys. I mean, you've got Jesus and the, and the 11, now that Judas has gone over and, and is betraying him. And then you've got a cohort. Maybe, maybe there's a detachment of the cohort. It's plenty of guys to overwhelm the disciples. And if you've ever been to the land of Israel, you know that the Mount of Olives sits across the brook Kidron from the city. And, and, uh, Within the walls of the city, the first thing that you see, if you're looking from the Mount of Olives over across that uh, valley, that Brook Kidron, to the city of Jerusalem, you see the gates of the city. Behind the gates were the temple, and built on the corner of the temple was this thing called the Antonia Fortress, this Roman fortress that they built onto the temple complex, really defiling the whole place by their Gentile presence. But at any rate, my point is, This would have been totally visible to anybody on the Mount of Olives. The torches, the troops, here they come. And it's obvious where they're going, and everybody knows who they're coming for. I mean, you would see them come out of the Antonio Fortress with all those torches. You'd see them go down the hillside on one and start making their way up on the the other, and you see there's a bunch of guys coming, and they're heavily armed. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. And, and I just want to pause here and, and uh, talk about uh, something that happened to me at one point in, in my life. It, this was actually through reading G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. And in that book, he's got this great section on what courage is and, and really the, the, the calculation that courage makes. And the calculation that courage makes is life is so precious that it's worth dying for. And and the people under my protection are so valuable that they're worth more than my life. That's the calculation that courage makes. And and I can remember as as, as I was reading that book and thinking about that particular passage one night, 
I, I heard these sounds. And I, it was the middle of the night, and I woke up to these sounds in my house. And, and I really thought that there was an intruder in our home. And I thought, the first thought that came to my mind, coward, cowardice, first thought that came to my mind was, well, maybe if I stay in bed and I don't get up, they'll just leave. The next thought that came to my mind was, my children are in this house. My wife is in this house. And these people matter more to me than my own life. And I sprang out of bed, and I grabbed the baseball bat beside my bed, and I made my way through the house. There was nobody in the house. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There was no intruder. But the, the point here is the calculation that courage makes. And that's the calculation that the Lord Jesus makes in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. I think John means he knows exactly what the Romans are going to do to him. He knows exactly uh, the, the, the agony, uh, the suffering, the crucifixion that awaits him. In the other Gospels, you know, he's been telling the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and they will crucify him. He's been saying this over and over. And there, you know, Peter's reaction, this will never happen to you, Lord. And, and this moment is kind of like that moment when the serpent starts talking to Eve in the garden. And this time, the protector, the defender, the one charged to keep the garden, knowing that all would happen to him, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, the ESV renders this, I am he, but in the Greek text, it's just ego eimi. I am. And I, I think that John intends to evoke the Lord's naming of himself in, in Exodus 3. So Jesus identifies himself, and Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And, and some commentators, they kind of want to explain this away as though there's this big crowd of people and they get startled by Jesus and they kind of stumble backward and fall over themselves. I think that's an insufficient explanation. I think what happens here is the Lord Jesus reveals himself like he does on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And they are overawed by the revelation of his divine glory and they draw back and fall to the ground because they recognize there is a power here and there is a glory here that is unlike anything in our experience. So he asked them again, verse 7. I can remember um, hearing John Hanna, who had a big influence on West Pastor, um, exposit this passage on one occasion. And he said, you know, it's almost like the Lord Jesus, having, having triumphed over them, decides to let them up at this point. You know, he, he allows them to stand up, and then it's as though he gives them himself over to them. And he's doing exactly what he described in, in John 10 when he says, I have authority to, he's, no, one, no one takes my life from me, I have authority to lay it down, and if I lay it down, I will take it up again. He asked them again, verse 7, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. That's what courage does. Courage says, my life for yours. And in order for us to be the leaders, providers, 
protectors, the, the royal priestly prophets. I'm not saying you're going to have prophetic gifts. I'm a cessationist. But in order for us to be the men that God has called us to be, we're going to have to have courage. And we're going to have to be prepared to say in every room of the house and in every situation that we find ourselves in, my life for yours, my agenda for yours. There's a beautiful account of this in the book of Genesis. You remember this story when uh, the brothers have gone down to Joseph and um, Joseph has, um, has kept one of the brothers and he's demanded Benjamin. And he's told them, you will not see my face again. You will not get any more bread until your brother Benjamin comes down. And they go back up and they, they explain this situation to Jacob. And Jacob is like, why did you tell them about, tell that man about Benjamin? And they're like, well, he, he questioned us closely. He basically drew, he, you know, they don't know that it's Joseph, but we had, we couldn't help it. And, and, um, Reuben, Reuben makes this awful, awful bargain. He says, if I send, send Benjamin with me, with me, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons, which what kind of a deal is that, you know? I, I value the life of your son so much that you can kill my sons, whom I value more than... I mean, it just doesn't... It's not convincing at all. And so Jacob doesn't send him. And then Judah steps forward and he says, my life for his. And, you know, Judah is a man with an agenda. He's got projects. He's got a life. He's got, a, he's got things he wants to do. And he steps forward and he says, my life for his. And then they go down and sure enough, Joseph seizes Benjamin. And Judah who probably wanted to be loved by his father Jacob the way that Joseph and Benjamin had been loved. So, and yet, probably had learned his father's backstory. And he had probably come to know, you know, my father didn't even want to marry my mother to begin with. He just wanted to marry Rachel. He didn't even want Leah, to whom I was born. And, and I think he has to have come to a place where he loved his father and he sympathized with his father because in that, in that speech that he gives to Joseph, he mentions his father over and over and over again. And what, what Judah is doing is he is saying, my father is more important to me than my own life. And he's saying, my brother Benjamin, who doesn't deserve my love, his life is more important to me than my own life. It, it's, it's a beautiful type of what Christ does here in John 18. So this Adamic pattern of, of failure is really a pattern of your life for mine. I'm not intervening to risk my life for your benefit. And Jesus comes along and says, my life for yours. And this is what he calls his followers to. In, in the Synoptic Gospels, you know, he regularly says to, to those who would come after him, anyone who would come after me must take up the cross and follow me. That's the call. Come and die. Come and give your life for others the way I'm giving your my life for you. In, in John 12, you know, the Greeks come to Jesus and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is John 12, 23. And then in verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I'm just going to insert a little biblical theological um, um, excursus here for you to think about and ponder. This is kind of a, this is something that I'm, I'm thinking about. I think there's something to this. Genesis chapter 1, on the third day, the Lord creates trees, fruit trees, bearing seed according to their kinds. Now Moses doesn't go on to say, 
um, for these fruit trees to reproduce, that apple or that orange or whatever the case may be has to fall on the ground and then rot and then the seed dies and then life comes out of the dead seed. He doesn't, he doesn't go on to the, into all that, but it's nevertheless, nevertheless the case that on the third day, tree, fruit trees bearing seed according to their kinds are created. And, and I think that uh, when terms like seed are introduced in Genesis 1, the meaning of those terms informs their later usage. So I think that when the Lord says, when Moses presents the Lord saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, we're supposed to think of the fruit trees on the third day whose fruit falls into the ground and dies and then bears more fruit. So what I'm suggesting is that the Lord, by the way that he created the world, by the way that he spoke to the serpent, and then by the way that he inspired Moses to notice these things and to record them this way, is it, there's a built-in death, death and resurrection component to this, and, and, and I'm inclined to think that at some level, Moses would have understood it. And I'm going to give you another, another indicator from the Pentateuch that would point in the direction of Moses' understanding that seed implies death and resurrection, death, death and life. You, you know this same terminology of seed is used for um, the, the man's seed that goes into the woman. And, and you know that, I, I assume that you're Bible readers, you've, you've read a book like Leviticus, there are things that make people unclean. And the logic of what makes people unclean seems to be anything that, that, that results from death, that connotes death, any kind of contact with death is what results in you being rendered unclean. And I think kind of the broader logic of the way this works is um, the, the, the Garden of Eden is the clean realm of life. Any kind of transgression is going to result in death, right? The wages of sin is death. And any kind of contact with death results in uncleanness. Death is unclean. And so, for instance, if you've got uh, some kind of skin disorder that is resulting in your, your, your skin particles flaking off, that's contact with death, and that skin disorder renders you unclean. If life fluids leave your body, whether that's in the case of men, uh, the, I think the ESV renders it a nocturnal emission, but, but really if it, what it says is an emission of seed. The word seed is used in these texts. Because that life fluid has left your body, it's now no longer alive in vital contact with your body, and so you've come into contact with these life fluids that are now dead, and that renders you unclean. If a woman has a child, life fluids leave the body, all this blood, it's no longer in vital contact with her body, she's come into contact with that, those life fluids, she's unclean for a period of time. If you're in a tent, and somebody else in the tent dies, your contact with that death renders you unclean. This is, this is what informs, um, if, a, if a man, if a, a husband has intercourse with his wife, he's unclean. Until evening. And this is why when, when the Israelites go out to battle, uh, when they go out to war, they're, they're to stay, stay away from their wives for three days prior to the battle so that they go into battle in a clean and holy state, in a devoted and purified state, not having been made unclean by any life fluids leaving their body. Now, here's what I'm driving at. The life fluid that leaves the body is the seed. And so I think I think in their, in their way of conceptualizing this, when the seed leaves the male body, it's dead. 
and it's, it's as though the seed falls into the earth and, and it you know, fertilizes the woman's egg. And, and having died, life comes out of the death. I think that's the way that they're, they're thinking about um, the conception of children in the Old Testament. And I think this is what Jesus is basically saying when he says in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat, he's talking about himself now, a grain of wheat, Unless a grain of wheat, me, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he applies it to his followers. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I don't think he's saying hate your life in the sense of be miserable. I think what he's saying is recognize that if you want to keep your life, you've got to lay it down. And, and there are things that are more valuable than your life in this world. And, and you've got to be prepared to give your life for others. I think that's what he's basically saying. Look at verse 20, the next verse, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I think he's basically saying, if anyone would come, to, come after me, he must take up the cross and follow me. So Jesus is the new Adam who breaks the Adamic pattern by overcoming that love of self, that prioritization, whatever that word, prioritization of self, and giving his life down for his people. Take me and let these men go. And, and what happens with us is as we, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, we are transformed into the same image, and this is what enables us to, whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God as you follow Christ, as you live out this gospel principle of my life for yours. I'm going to give you an example from... um, from my experience as a, as a seminary professor. Um, I was once, um, we were v- once interviewing PhD candidates. And um, it was me and one other colleague. And uh, these candidates that, you know, they've, they've completed the entrance exams, they've taken the GRE. So we see, we've seen all their materials. And now they walk into the room and they sit down before us. And we have this live in-person interview. And one of these candidates was so clearly capable. And, and as a professor, what you want is somebody who's capable. Because the less capable they are, the more work it's going to be for you. <laughs> because if they can't write a sentence, you're going to have to correct all those bad sentences. And if they can't form an argument, you're going to have to try to, you know, pro- poke and prod and, and, and try to spur them on to love and good deeds. It's going to be a lot of work. And you might be confronted with a situation where you have to say to somebody, I'm sorry. You just don't pass. And, and nobody wants to say that to somebody. Nope. So part of the point of the, the, the entrance exams and interview is you don't want to let somebody in that you can't let out the other side. So you're trying to discern, can this person do the work? Well, one of these guys was, was the kind of student that you want because you, 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 know, you want to read things that are actually fun to read, that are actually stimulating, that you actually learn from. So you want good students. So one of these guys was that kind of student. And the other guy... It was obvious he's going to be work. He was not well-spoken. He did not have good scores. Not so bad that we couldn't let him in, 
But it was not, it, it, it was, you could just tell, this is gonna be work. This is gonna be hard. And my colleague, you know, we, we do the interviews and um, we dismiss, the, we interviewed them one by one and after, after all this is over, um, senior colleague, and he says to me, well, I'll take this student and, you know, if you want the other one, you can have him. <laughs> and it's his prerogative, you know? And, and I, I just thought to myself, he who is rich became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9. That's who we are, and that's how we're called to live. We're called to follow Christ. You know the grace, Paul says, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he who is rich became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And I said, I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, you know, as the thing unfolds, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you who this person is, so I don't think I'm wronging anyone, but praise the Lord, about a semester or two in, he decided of his own accord, this just isn't for me. I'm not cut out for this. And he left the program. Praise the Lord. I think that was the right decision. It's a good thing to know what you're not built for. But what I'm driving at is the gospel is meant to transform us into Christ-likeness. We are saved by the gospel. We're transformed by the gospel. And we become people who are ready to say, wherever we are in every situation, my life for yours. This is about me laying down my life for you. And then what we need is the wisdom to know how to prioritize which people we lay down our lives for at which time. And, and in, you know, in my opinion, the ranking needs to start with if you're married, my wife is the primary person for whom I lay down my life. And then my kids come after her, and then my church family. And, and so if some random person on the street comes up to me and has a need, well, is this going to compromise my ability to be faithful to my wife, to my kids, to my church? And if the answer to that is yes, I'm sorry that you have a need, but I'm not the person to meet it. And, and, and I think this is how we sort through these, these situations and seek to glorify God in every circumstance. The only way we can do this is if we are born again. You will only be, be able to lay down your life for others if you have experienced what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Having been dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, God in his mercy makes you alive and raises you up with Christ and seats you with him. If you have experienced regeneration, if you've been born again and made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, well, you're created in Christ Jesus for the good works of those who follow him. Uh, um, as Ephesians 2.10 articulates, because you've been saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. So the new Adam enables us to be renewed in his image, and we're going to live in this afflicted, cursed, uh, bent world until Christ returns. And, and because of our hope, we're going to be afflicted and all, but always rejoicing. We're going to be beaten down but not crushed. And we're going to be able to do what 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says. We're going to be those who rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And, and um, as, as, we th as we think about this, the, the analogy that, that um, came to my mind was um, as, as, we, as we serve as husbands and fathers and as 
employees. I know not everything is coaching, and I know not everything is sports, and, but, but yet, um, I, I think the coaching analogy is a helpful one. And in, in my experience right now, um, I am regularly watching what I consider to be a bad coach at work. Maybe you've, maybe you've observed a coach and you've thought to yourself, that guy is not a good coach. So I just want to describe some things that happen and, and invite you to look at your life and ask yourself, am I conducting myself like a bad coach? So one of the things that regularly happens for this, for this team is they get to the offensive end of the floor and the coach screams, what are you in? I mean, almost every time down the floor, what are you in? And, and I sit there and I think to myself, coach, take the point guard aside and say to him, when you cross the half court line, I want you to call a play. And if you don't know what play to call, give me some signal, look at me, and I will tell you what play I want you to run. This is the way we're going to do this. When you cross half court, you are going to call a play. If you don't, I'm going to shout your name, and then you're going to call a play. Or I'm going to shout a play. But I'm not going to say over and over again, every game, every trip down to the offensive end of the floor, what are you in? That's accomplishing nothing. Stop it. And, and I think that in many cases, husbands and fathers are basically doing the same thing. What are you doing? They're screaming at their kids. They're, they're, they're complaining about their wives. What you need to do is, is back this thing up and ask yourself, what's happening here? What do I need to have happen? And, and how do I positively impact this situation? And how do I lay down my life for these people that I'm involved with? So that, I mean, in fact, just thinking through this process is part of the process of laying down your life. Another example, uh, this particular coach is mainly negative with his players. And he's negative in a way that's just flat out unfair to them. So, uh, for instance, the other team, there, there will... Every time, the other team will have a, a really good player. I mean, most teams have a really good player, right? Somebody that can shoot and somebody that can take the ball to the hole. And every time, we put our best defender on the other team's best player. And that best defender, he has to make a calculation. I'm either going to get up in his face, at which point he's going to go around me, or I'm going to back off him, at which point he's going to have an opportunity to shoot. So, but I'm making a calculation to guard this guy because he's both quick and he can shoot the basketball. Well, you know, I don't think it's helpful for the coaches to put our best defender on the other team's best player, and then when he nails a three, for them to say to our best defender, you're not closing out! Well, he's trying to close out. How about you do some coaching? How about you make an adjustment, and you say to our best defender, I want you up in his face, and then I want you to be prepared to help off your man when he goes around it. He's going to go around him. He's fast. Let, let's, let's coach, in other words. Let's look at the situation. Let's think about what's happening. And let's no, don't just berate somebody for not being able to do something that's, at the end of the day, impossible. Let, let's, let's, make an, let's recognize what's, what's, what somebody's capable of and then make necessary adjustments. This requires thinking. And, and this particular coach, he... He just, it's like he just doesn't even think about what's going on. And he doesn't recognize what's really possible. He just screams. And, and you don't want to be a husband like that. And you don't want to be a father like that. And you don't want to be an employer like that. You, you want to you be prepared to think about what people are trying to do and lay your life down by putting yourself in their shoes 
and then trying to actually be helpful in the situation. Um, here, here's, here's another example of, I think, this guy's bad coaching. This team, I'm sorry to just rant about this, but I hope this is beneficial and profitable to you. This team never practices shooting. They don't shoot the basketball in practice. And then when they miss shots in the game, the coach screams at them. I'm like, what do you expect? You know, this is like a baseball team that never takes batting practice. What do you think they're going to do? They're not going to hit the ball. You, you have to work on things. And, I mean, I've, I've been reflecting this weekend on the things that I need to go home and coach my kids about. I need to go home and I need to sit each of my four kids that remain at home down. And, and that whole negative thing, I can't just be, this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you, you're bad at, and you need to do better. I need to form the kind of relationship where I say, and they, and they believe me, you're killing it on this front. And you're really good at this. And I'm so proud of the way that you're succeeding in this area. And I commend you for so much about who you are. But we got some areas we need to work on. And you, you yourself know how things go. And you've experienced the negative fallout of this. And we need to address this. And here's how we're going to address it. Here's what we're going to do to train ourselves to do better in this situation. So what I'm, what I'm telling you is don't be a bad coach. Don't be a bad coach in your home, at your workplace, whatever the case may be. And, and really, I think that the, the New Testament authors, this is what they're doing. The reason they're saying the things they're saying in their letters is, is because they're looking at these churches and they're saying, how can I positively impact these churches? How can I help these people succeed in the Christian life? How can I help them overcome the difficulties that they're clearly facing? So a great example of this is the, what happens in the, author, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, where that author, he looks at these people and he recognizes these people are tempted to go back to Judaism and, and basically asks, them, asks himself the question, how do I lay down my life for them? Well, they need an argument for why Christianity is, is actually the fulfillment of Judaism and why Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And he writes this magnificent letter as an act of self-sacrificial, other-centered, self-giving love to convince these people to stay with Christ and to persevere. It's, it's really beautiful the way that he does it. Um, as, I, as I close this morning, I want to tell you a story about my dad and the way that I think he, he lived this out. And, and, you know, one of the most beautiful things about this story is that my dad, when, this, when all this went down, he had, he had no theological education, and he was a relatively new Christian. My dad, um, he came to faith in high school, and, and then he, he, he went to a Christian school, but it's not like he had a bunch of Bible classes um, or, or theology classes. He, he, he had almost none of that. He was, he was a very young disciple. He and my mother were married at the start of his senior year, and my dad, uh, when he was in high school, he was the best athlete in the state of Arkansas. I mean, we have gone all over the state of Arkansas and every, throughout my life, and everywhere we've gone, people knew my dad. And they would say things to me like, I saw your dad play. He could go. And, and you know, he's in, he's in like every possible Hall of Fame in the state of Arkansas. He was, he was phenomenal. And uh, the New York Mets, Mets wanted to sign him out of high school to play baseball for them. And his dad wanted him to go to college. 
and he chose to go to a smaller college so that he could play both basketball and baseball. And he was all-conference in both sports his sophomore, junior, and senior years. He was, he was phenomenal. He's in that school's Hall of Fame. And I was born in April of his senior year. And my, my dad does not come from wealthy parents. His parents basically had no money. And uh, my mother's parents had no money. So my dad takes me and my mother, and he puts us with his parents in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he goes to Sarasota, Florida to try to make it, to try to, try to pursue his dream of, of you know, climbing his way up through the ranks. And he was there at the same time as Gary Templeton. And um, um, he would call his father and say, yeah, they got this big prospect, Gary Templeton. I'm a better ball player than he is, which I think that was probably <laughs> a little bit of uh, self-aggrandizing pride. And I think, was, I, you know, I think it was probably the case that Gary Templeton was a phenomenal athlete, and my dad was probably a more skilled baseball player, but Gary Templeton's upside was higher because he was such a better athlete. Anyway, um, about six weeks in, and it's six weeks of eating the continental breakfast at the hotel, and, and basically scrounging anything he can find in the clubhouse for food in, in, at lunch because he has no money, and then scrounging anything he can, he can find for dinner because he's trying to send all his money home to Fort Smith, Arkansas to keep me and my mother alive. And after six weeks, he walks into the front office and he says to them, you're either going to have to give me more money or I'm going to have to go home and get a job and take care of my wife and my son. And they said, there is no more money. So he came home. And you can imagine the possible outcomes of that kind of situation. I think there'd be a lot of guys that would have resented me <laughs> in that situation, resented my mother. And through the whole of his life, I never sensed anything from my dad but that he was glad that I was his son. And he was thrilled to be with me. He came home. He, he, it's like he put his dream on the altar and crucified it. And he came home and he threw himself into being my mother's husband and my father. And, and it, was, it was the case for me and my three younger siblings, all four of us, all through the course of our lives, um, we were in church. And whatever level of, of involvement we were in, that's where he was. If, if we were in the nursery, he was volunteering in the nursery. If we were in the youth program, he was volunteering in the youth program. He was teaching a high school Sunday school class. He was, he was always right there with us. And, you know, he, he, there were so many times in, in my growing up years where um, he would say, hey, I'm going to the store. Come go with me. He took me everywhere he went. And if I said to him, can we go to the ball field and, and you, you hit me some and, and, and throw me some batting practice? Absolutely. Let's go. It, it, it's, it's just amazing the way that he rejoiced in his affliction and never looked back, never lamented it, never complained about it. The only, the only reason I, I'm aware of this is because I've reflected on his account of the sequence of events. There was never a moment where I sensed I cost him everything he wanted. But that's basically the case. So... <clears throat> because of this Christ-likeness that my dad has lived out, I mean, um, that there is nothing that will be as rewarding to us in our lives as self-giving, self-sacrificial love. My, my, I probably talk to my dad every day, maybe multiple times a day, 
And that's the case for every one of his kids. And um, he comes to visit, and everybody in our church knows and loves my dad. Uh, this, is a, this is a man who is not bitter. He's not bitter, and he's not, you know, uh, blaming people. He's glad to lay down his life. And the ironic thing about all this is this is the path to joy. The path to joy is the path of take up the cross and follow Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would so work in our hearts that we feel the joy of our salvation when, like a seed, we fall into the ground and die to bear fruit. And I pray, Lord, that you would make it so that we, we delight to live out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, became poor, that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Lord, make us those who believe what you've promised, who know the reward that awaits us, who are confident that you will raise the dead, and as a result, are courageous in laying down our lives for others. Lord, we pray that you would cause this to happen in our marriages, with our children, and in our every endeavor. We pray that you would make us those who live out the gospel in the context of the work that we do. We love you. We pray that you would bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. We pray that you'd lift up your countenance upon us and be gracious to us in Christ's name. Amen.